Do you remember that? Sigma Pompey. We turn up to like an, uh, oh. a, a pump shop, <laughs> some sort of plumbers, and then Charlotte sort of disappears into this compound for like an hour. And we're like, Charlotte's dead. <laughs> so like, well, long. Charlotte's definitely dead. And we're in like this sort of weird trucker's hostel. That was thing. the official sea, sea accommodation for the yeah. competition. I no, can't believe no, any team no, actually stayed no, there. Ex- no expense spared. But do you know <laughs> what? The camp, the camp was, I mean, that was quite funny, but the camp was quality. Hello and welcome to The Run-In, sponsored by Envy and Straight Compasses. This week, our main interview is with GB junior coach Mark Nixon. It's going to be a really deep dive into how to get the best out of our young athletes from across the UK and expect some controversial opinions as well. We've warned you about them early doors. (laughs) Now, there's not much news to review this week, but we can preview this weekend's elite races in the Lake District and return to elite racing in the UK with the Lakes Reloaded weekend. So 3rd of October, Saturday, there's a middle distance at Rusland Beaches. And uh, Sunday, the 4th of October, there's a long distance at Graithwaite Estate, two kind of classic areas which has been, have been used quite a lot in recent years for things like the British Long Distance Champs and mm. for the JK as well. Um, Catherine, pretty tough and gnarly terrain. Should we start with the middle distance and uh, kind of a bit of analysis of, of where we are with, with that terrain and uh, who we think is going to do well? Have you seen how many people entered? There are so many people entered. There's, it's fantastic. I think, se- is that really, am I really reading that right? 77? Yeah. So 46 entries. There we go. They've just got weird numbers on them. So, back guys, these, so these are elite only races um, put alongside a couple of races that Lakeland Orange Touring Club mm. are putting on. So I guess, firstly, thank you to Lakeland for being so accommodating with the event they already had scheduled and as applying the elites, something to uh, race as part of the Elite League and Duncan Burt whistle for a, uh, Doing the main organising behind it, I think, yeah, thanks to uh, to both of those groups for having the uh, the effort and the um, commitment to put something on. It's fantastic to have Elite Racing back and, yeah, it's a really deep field. Yeah, it, I'm just looking down the start list and there are like loads of, um, you know, top guys and girls entered. I think it's it's going to be really difficult to call, I think, simply because we kind of don't really know where people are at mm. chatting to you know ali thomas uh last episode and him saying he was a bit injured some people i think will have got injured over this um lockdown they'll kind of not really be up for fitness they'll not be running in places like Greyfrey and Rustland beaches like they'll have been on southern forest where it's totally different and yet others will be They'll, you know, be running the best they've ever been running and um, they'll absolutely be smashing it. So this is like, genuinely, I'm really kind of, I don't know what is going to go down. Any that you want to pick out, Will? Um, yeah, so I, I had a bit of a look at the start list. Um, I'm not going to pick myself. <laughs> I think that's probably unfair. Uh, I'm also not going to pick Duncan as he's organised all the races. So he's obviously going to win. <laughs> um, so I'll pick a I'll pick a second, third, and a fourth for, for each one. Um, no, so I think the interestingly for the middle distance, I reckon it's going to be some younger folk um, mm. who are who are going to do well. So you mentioned Ali Thomas there. I think he uh, he performed really well at the Lakes Junior Selection races, and then other people who are from the Lake District as well. People like Joe Hud, who's an M eighteen, but I reckon will do really really well over the five point two kilometer um, men's elite distance. Because you've got quite a few juniors also running up to to kind of face more of our experienced athletes. So likes of Alistair McLeod, Graham Griswood, Griswood as well, who are going to be there. I'd say they're kind of my four standout names from the men's field who I think could uh, put in 
some expected performances and also a couple of surprises. What about yourself? Yeah, I think those are the people I'd pick out. Pete Bray has had some good runs yep, in Pete. the last, in the, you know, the last year of international racing. So it's also one to potentially pick out. Nathan Lawson's um, been putting in some solid training as well mm-hmm. um, up in Sheffield, so he could do well. Yeah, I mean, really, there's those three that you kind of mentioned who do good, but in, kind of in your top ten, it's really like a good mix of people and that that I think is really wide open. In the women's mm. though, I'm really looking for our youngsters, Fiona Bunn and Grace Malloy, I think are really the couple of favourites in, in the women's class. Ah, see I was I was actually gonna be a bit different. I think both of those two will do very well. I was also thinking Pippa Archer, quite mm. an experienced head. I think she could do really well with the technical um challenge that they like to face because Russell and Beach is for anyone who hasn't oriented there um, and for any foreign listeners it's um on the side of a a hill in the lake district really steep craggy slopes you're trying to kind of trying to find your way through different entrants which are lined with cliffs so find your way almost maze-like through the gaps in the entrance and the cliffs onto the next one and not drop too far to your control so if you drop too low you're instantly going to lose mm. i mean 30 seconds or so on a control and finding your way back so it's quite confusing terrain as well as some more open runnable forest on the far edges as well i also think chloe haynes could do really well okay she's always pretty reliable at some of the oo cup races in the summer on very technical terrain so yeah and then we've got a few other internationals like cecilia anderson sarah jones is in there florence haynes we haven't seen florence i haven't seen florence. florence's name on a start list for years it seems like so and lucy great. haynes as well yeah three haynes girls all on that start list it's just it's great to see so uh absolutely but i i think grace will do well like she really likes the tough terrain being a scot kind of and going through all the grot and all the horribleness like i think she's gonna be able to to deal with the, the tough lake district terrain <laughs> yeah i think she'd she'll do pretty well and then sunday the yeah. long distance competition this is a bit of a different beast so 5.2k for the men on the Saturday, 4.5 for the women, 195 and 160 metres climb respectively. And long distance, so um, Duncan did tell me that he has asked for a, uh, a full 90 to 100 minute winning time for the men and a full distance for the women as well. So that'll be around 70 to 80 minutes. Um, so it's 7.2k for the women with 395 metres of climb, 19 controls, so less than the middle distance of the day before, which had 20. Um, and then the men is 108 570 metres of climb, 25 control. So just two more than the middle distance. So it sounds like a good, proper, tough, long distance. And uh, Well, if the courses are anything like the junior selection race, they're <laughs> yeah. going to be top quality. Absolutely. So good, tough, late district beach woods with rocky slopes, very gr- dark green pine forest on the top of the hill where you've really got to get your compass right and get your navigation sorted as well as tough open fell sections as well to test the physicality so really going to be a mix of good things for for all of the athletes but i think i don't know about you Catherine. i'm leaning towards some of the more experienced people like um ali mcleod gg yeah and just those people who've got a bit more endurance in their legs and a bit more strength i definitely agree with that we've seen we've seen those guys do very well over the you know british and the jk long distances um recently so yeah why not but i mean you know anything could happen on that kind of thing and and especially because as i said we don't really know what people's kind of form is in i still think anything could happen and i'm gonna look forward to seeing all people's route choices through on there on hopefully we've got some lovely long legs on that race but for the women's i think 
kind of son of similar all those names i've picked out i'd expect to do well on both disciplines to be honest yeah definitely i'm quite interested to see how people transfer over from having done quite a lot of track racing this summer like you say of um and then into the forest so the uh, not necessarily track racing just any just running just any just running yeah they can get (laughs) so i was thinking people like um pippa carcass as well how how will she do stepping up to a full 21 elite as well because Mm. she did really well last summer in the um in the jock chasing sprint, if I remember correctly. So yeah. that'd be quite interesting. And and her two brothers, Freddie and Alex as well, who've been doing quite a lot of road, well, where they have been able to, doing some road racing as well. So seeing how they go in the uh, in the forest. But And obviously we're missing a few Brits who live abroad, all that kind of stuff. But other than that, like there's a, it's a pretty solid turnout, pretty good start, really to is. be honest. There's, uh, this is often, you know, a lot better and actually miles better than we'll see even at a at a JK or a British for, for these events. So is it I guess yeah. if people are just starved of racing, they just want any opportunity to go orienteering at the moment? Yeah, probably is. But I think the, the draw of the maps is probably quite high. They know they're going to get two really high quality, really tough and technical races which are going to test them and that the person who wins is definitely going to be the best orienteer. It's not going to be a running race. It's not going to be just a navigation race. It's going to be a full mixture of both. Totally. How have you prepared, Will? How are you preparing for this weekend's races? Oh, well, I don't think I have, to be honest. (laughs) (laughs) Um, There's not much you can do, really, where you live. So, yeah, so living in the Midlands is not too much prep for the Lake District rocks that I could do because I think there's normally about one rock on every Midlands map. Um, that's like in a car park or something like that. (laughs) Um, but my, uh, to be honest, I feel quite underprepared. Um, I I did, I actually managed to do a couple of orienteering races last weekend, just gone. Um, Octavian Drubas put on one just for club members as their return to orienteering, which was fantastic to see people. Great to go out and actually see some flags in the forest, which when I have done some orienteering training, I haven't had since March. And I actually did, I felt like I did quite well at that. And then, I did a race on the Sunday as, you know, kind of a secondary prep, both kind of middle distance length and did abysmally. Um, oh. My worst orienteering in the UK, I think, in about five years. So, oh, no. <laughs> it was, oh, it was shocking in, in quite a funny way. Uh, but most most of my prep at the moment has been more around, around my physical training and getting fitter and all of that. So I haven't been too focused on these as, as goals in, in and of themselves. So I'm taking them more as a return to orienteering you know, seeing where my seeing where my fitness is at for the terrain and what I have to do over the winter for next year. It's such an unknown and a bit of a shock to the system returning to O if you've not been out <laughs> hunting kites and stuff. Even and even if you know, for you it sounds like it was almost a delayed shock to the system. Like you were so excited for the first one and then maybe the second one is where it really kind of hit home that you've not actually done that much. So Yeah. You know, it'll be and what al- it'll be. Exactly. And all of those small elements of luck that you get by doing more training. I think in the first one, I didn't have any of those kind of run past the kite and not see it mm-hmm. at moments and then couldn't hit a control without running past it and having to go back, it seems, on the Sunday. But even small stuff like running, you know, having two controls on a straight leg and starting to run to the second one and having to go back uh, and things like that. So it was just basic At least you things. noticed. I, well, always, I, always, I always miss one out. I've done that twice. Yeah. Oh, so, I mean, I've, I've done it. In, uh, yeah, I've done it in a big race as well. I've, I think I did it at World Unis once. Um, uh, but yeah, so it, I mean, it was just nice to be back orienteering at the weekend and I think this weekend will just be a really fun 
experience. Well, enjoy. It looks like it's going to be great. I hope you have good weather and I hope you race well. We'll definitely have a full debrief on the next we will. Uh, full length pod. Um, well, there but- is apparently going to be some GPS tracking so people can ah. keep an eye out for it and uh, and see what goes down as well. Yes. Okay. That's exciting. So watch out for where everybody goes. We can do some full analysis yeah. <laughs> next time. Also, um, be but- painful. <laughs> yeah, well, no pressure. Um, we, so we've got a little bit of news on Euro meeting, and it looks like there's not really going to be many Brits going, which is, let's be honest, not really a surprise. No, I think with the government putting Czech Republic on a uh, do not advise to go list, and with a two week quarantine when you get back, obviously British orienteering can't be seen to go against government advice. That's just, you know, yeah. Yeah. as a national federation, we as a group completely understand the position that offer in and they try to help us as much as possible there is the option to enter as individuals and they've spoken to the organizers about that and Hector Haynes and Mark Saunders who've been putting in a lot and John Cross as well been putting a lot of work behind the scenes to be able to get some elements of a British team out there even if it's um, not an official one so we can enter as individuals but with university term starting people starting new jobs after finishing masters etc other jobs where a lot of a lot of volunteers obviously have to be on site for various things if engin- if you work in engineering and so forth. So it just became more and more unlikely that many people would go. I think there's currently four of us who are down as um, still interested in going, but those numbers may also fall by the wayside. I'm one of those four. I'm still keen to at the moment to go, but um, even that as, as someone who's quite lucky in being able to work from home or well, who has been working from home permanently since March, I, I'm still in a slight uh, slightly difficult position with that of being able to go or not so yeah big, big shame because I think everyone was really looking forward to it and seeing pictures from the terrain that <laughs> Meg Carter-Davis and Ben Mitchell are currently putting up is uh, oh, quite cruel because <laughs> <laughs> it looks fantastic um, definitely some terrain envy absolutely we'll still be able to support some Brits who are going to be there but yeah just small numbers now well, we'll wait and see what develops with that, um, whether you get to go, Will. But let's uh, go straight on to this episode's big interview. So Mark Nixon, he's coach of Edinburgh University and for the GB Junior Squads, uh, bringing some of his international experience to coaching as well. And personally, as someone who does a little bit of coaching myself or kind of mentoring, as I like to call it a bit more, um, it was really great to have a chat. So um, embrace the opinions. And uh, this is our chat with Mark Nixon. Mark, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. How are you doing? Very well. Very well. How are you? How's everything yeah. back in uh, Edinburgh now? Terms opening up. Interesting. Very interesting. So Freshers Week is a couple of days deep at the moment. I'm working from home. Basically, haven't seen anyone. Um, the club went orienteering today, so that's a good thing. I printed the map, so I didn't. I didn't go to it. Um, but yeah, things are starting back up as well as they can in uh, in the climate that we currently find ourselves in. Yeah. Yeah, let's let's dive into that um, element. So you're currently um, coach at Edinburgh and involved with the um, GB JWAT squad as well. What was your reaction to all of the events getting pulled this year? How did that kind of affect your your summer and your year? Uh, I mean, there's a few different answers. I'm kind of a few different people. So it's like coach, athlete, and just person. Um, let's roll through all of them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, as a coach, obviously, I'm guided for, for the guys, right? Everyone's been training. I mean, yourself included, right? Everyone's been training really, really hard. And I think as a senior, I mean, I, I get it. So I've had to write off so many seasons myself due to injury. And actually, I personally didn't find it that bad of a thing. 
are much older, so actually a year for me is much less of a thing. Um, and no, that's, that's a, that you know that that's true. There's that time dilation. The older you get, the less a year appears. Mm-hmm. Um, when you're a junior, there's it's like it's double because firstly, your junior career is finite. So you know the people who are graduating this year, the year two thousand date of births. You know this was their big shot. We've got Grace and Ali. You know who've done well in, in well exceptionally well in previous jaywalks, and we're looking. You know that fast um, last final final jaywalk to you know see where they're really at and. You know, for people like that, it's it's quite gutting. For the younger ones, well, there's Jaywalk next year. Well, <laughs> hopefully there's a Jaywalk. <laughs> hopefully. <laughs> hopefully there's a Jaywalk next year um, for them. So so for those guys, I feel gutted. And actually, you know, we had a lot of people in really, really good shape, for sure. You saw what we did in Denmark. Um, mm. We didn't, lo- didn't lose too much of the team. So, I, you know, it's a shame because I think we were could have gone and done something. And I think also Turkey being quite unique and special, I think we tend to do better in the bit more random terrains in random countries because i think it's it's a bit of a leveler if it's in scandinavia the scandies are going to dominate right um mm-hmm. so we've had i've been to norway been to finland um had a jaywalk in switzerland so i've been to a lot of jaywalks where a favorite nation is also the home nation whereas mm-hmm. turkey it's you know it's totally different terrain you mapping there was basically no real existing maps and stuff like that so i think we could have done really well like dealing with that adversity which other countries don't necessarily have the whole time but it is what it is. As a personal level, once stuff finally got cut, do you know what? I was relieved more than anything. Like it, it, it's stressful really? having having to just replan stuff and like. I mean, I, I, I was suspecting things weren't going to happen early on. Like it's like I'm pretty sure Jaywalk's not gonna not gonna go when when it was first just like the UK seat when when Britain got locked down and like looking at the state of Europe, it's like ah, it's, it's not going to happen. There's no way it's going to happen. But I wasn't saying that to the athletes. I was like, right, okay, let's get a twelve-week block plan. Okay, you know, we're going to try and do some selection races in June or whatever, and and, and go. And to them, I was keeping a brave face and and trying to keep their motivation high and confidence up. But deep down, I was like, I don't think it's going to happen. And then when you sort of get mid midterm, it's like it's not that far away, and they've not cancelled yet. It's like, could you could you cancel it? Because it's just ridiculous. Like, mm-hmm. it's clearly yeah. not. It's clearly not going to happen. Um, so then they obviously bumped it back to autumn. I was like, okay, that's fine do some uh, hybrid training through the summer. And then when it was getting here, it's like, actually, second wave is starting to hit Europe. Lots of countries can't really travel. Hungary, Hungary which was going to be, obviously, it went away from Turkey, right? Mm-hmm. So they, they stitched it onto EYC, which I think was actually a really good idea, really, really well, sort of the best they could do with the situation. So we're going to get a race for 16s, 18s, and 20s. And then Turkey as a country banned all foreign visitors. Um, <laughs> However, apparently, yeah, well, not apparently, according to their foreign office or whatever, whatever their equivalent is, if you are going to a, a sort of sanctioned sporting event, you're allowed to bypass that as long as you could have two tests within five, two clean tests within five days, two negatives. Mm. But I mean, even for us, like, I don't know what it's like where you are, but trying to get a test is oh, quite difficult. Yeah. yeah. And so we like, even if that, even if it was on, it's like, I don't think, I didn't think we were ever going to go out. But I mean, literally since maybe April, May, I was like, I'm not expecting to go to any internationals this year. I was still preparing everyone I was looking after to do it. Um, and I was kind of, do you know what? I was actually hoping it was being cancelled because it was just more and more stress for something that I genuinely believe is like, this ain't going to happen. It helps that my girlfriend is also a, <laughs> a scientist involved in research into COVID. So I kind of get a bit of, a bit more information than what you might read on BBC and stuff. Mm. And what was what was that like 
having to plan in those selection races that occurred on the bank holiday weekend when you were having these feelings of, you know, this is not going to happen, but we've still got to get these test races done. How are you building people up for that? Um, they were highly motivated. So, like, I've been a like, everyone's kept the motivation. Like, it, it, as a coach, it's been quite easy. Like, so the, the goalposts have changed. And, you know, people early lockdown, obviously, you know, it was hard to go orienteering. And now, like, it's still slightly hard to go. There's no official, really any official orienteering and stuff. But the athletes want to compete. They wanted to go to the selection races. They want to go to Jaywalk. So all I had to do was facilitate that. Yeah, it's a bit awkward doing things over Zoom or Teams or Skype or whatever. Like, that's not ideal. But um, I think we prepared well. You look at results. You know, we, we did do We sent six people down. Well, we sent seven, but one's American. Thomas Laria is the correct <laughs> pronunciation, by the way. Um, Thank you. We, yeah, you're welcome. We, um, <laughs> yeah, we, we, sent, we sent six people down. We got six in the team. And, you know, people finishing the top three basically every day. And we, we, we had three team meetings i think where we just got on zoom brought up the maps um everyone was planning courses uh going through the routes doing sort of um you know the 2d analysis for sprint you know measuring which way is quicker and stuff like that so um got them to in their own time drive around on the google street view for the sprint so everyone knew the area off by heart although a lot more in the forest than we were expecting but um everyone knew the area as well as they could we prepared we knew where the route choices were going to come because there's those bridges and the river we knew the sort of different styles of that map well prepared Graithwaite, everyone had been to the um, been training there this year. I think a lot of juniors have. There's been some. I think there's been some Northwest training there as well. So it, we have, we've all been to Graithwaite, um, <laughs> and just yep. uh, you know preparing as well, like preparing some long legs. I'd like to point out that is one of the best long legs I've ever seen. By the way, oh, maybe, yeah, maybe Ali best... said the same thing. Ali said exactly the same. Yeah, I mean, genuinely, I like. I can only think of one long leg in Britain that I've run that. Oh, not that I'd run that actually, but only one leg. There was um. <laughs> There was a sole on Craig Barnes a few years ago um, by ESOC, and we had however long a black is, and we only had like 11 controls or something. And there was this Ooh. amazing, um, yeah, it was, it was incredible. It was like, mm. it was like um, running a proper a long race rather than just 12K of middle distance, which is what we normally get. Um, yeah. But yeah, That's no, a what a leg. Of mine. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, the, our terrain kind of ends up doing that, especially in the South, because if you give a leg that long, like they had, you can just boost it to a path the whole way. Um, so I understand mm. why planners are a bit scared of putting in long legs like that. But but yeah, no, so the guys were motivated. So yeah, we did the prep we could. They were training hard the whole time. I mean, I think I've noticed just not just in orienteers, but in like running in general, people are in great shape now. I think actually more people are in better shape coming out of lockdown than, than in previous years. And I think there's a few reasons. I think, well, lots of people have been off work and furloughed or working from home. Um, students haven't been studying so it's like a massive reduction in life stress um mm. but also the racing like so much so much of the work i do with athletes is um injured athletes is like how are we trying to get them ready for racing an injured athlete still wants to race whereas now because there wasn't racing an injured athlete is rehabbing whereas before they're trying to get back for a race that realistically they shouldn't be running but you know it's their last shot as a junior or something like that um and we're trying to cram in training. We're trying to get them fit for in four weeks and six weeks and eight weeks. Whereas now people like anyone who's in that situation has, has done the right thing, taken the time off because there's no rush. There's no uh, deadline for them to meet. Um, mm. And people have been training really, really well. And actually, I think just the stress of racing, um, the travel, all these things that actually go into fatigue and Normally we get to Freshers' Week now and everyone's coming in a little bit knackered from the summer. You know, they've been traveling, they've been racing, training camps, holidays and all that stuff. 
Whereas now everyone's in like really good shape. So mm. a positive at, at, at least. That's one positive certainly from lockdown is people have been just focusing on doing the right thing and, and getting on with training. Yeah. Do you think we over-race as orienteers? This whole fixation of mm. going away every single weekend to do a race. Do you think that is, like, it gets to a point in kind of spring where everyone's going, right, time to go to a race every weekend to get prepped for JK? Yeah, maybe, I don't know. I, I mean, there's a spectrum of athletes. I mean, I tend to, I've under-race, personally. I, I tended to not race quite so much. There's certainly people who over, over-race. But it depends because it's like, when is an orienteering race just a hard session, which you'll be doing on a Saturday anyway? Yeah, um, or, orienteering mm-hmm. is is not full gas, right? Um, I mean, there's different there's different loading. You know, sprint has got a different loading to to a long to a middle, but um, you're still it's not the same as as doing an out and out track. Like I've done I've done sessions which are harder than orienteering, purely because the orienteering like you have to navigate. There's that slowdown. Um, the terrain's a little bit softer. You might get a little bit more beaten up. Like you might have a bit more soreness just because you know fighting through the forest and stuff but actually i'd say the the energy points you you spent in the orienteering is, is nothing greater than you would expect at a weekend and actually i'm sure if you went and looked through your attack point mate um some of your smaller week <laughs> smaller weeks are racing weeks um the racing day racing kills mileage like yes. if you only do well, if you yeah. do a, you're like oh that would have been a great week if i hadn't done a middle event on saturday <laughs> <laughs> so it's like that i don't know it's point. a very is it, I think it's a valid point, but like, uh, I don't think it's just the racing. I think it's the travel. And I think, so in terms of the physiology, no, I don't think we do ever race. I think, I think the body, you should be able to, you know, do a session on a Tuesday and, and one session at the weekend and something longer, but easier at the weekend. Like if, if, you've, if you've done the training, that's not an exceptional workload. Maybe if you're training a session Tuesday, Thursday, Saturday, Sunday, I'd question if you've got your workload right in that week. But I think mentally, there's a, there's a mental cost to racing. Um, and you know, like an emotional cost to it as well. And there's the travel and, and things like that. And I certainly feel like on race day, maybe your nu- nutrition's not great. Your hydration's not great. You know, traveling back on a Sunday, I often find that, you know, get back to the flat in the evening. You've not eaten properly because maybe you're racing around lunchtime. So that's already ruined one important meal of the day. Cause you don't want to eat before you run. Then after you run, I don't think you, most people generally don't eat enough after they run. Their stomach's not really ready for it and they're d- distracted and, you're not hydrating enough. So I think these things around the race but aren't actually the race contribute to that fatigue, if that makes sense. Yeah. yeah. If you lived in Scandinavia and you could just go out to terrain off your doorstep, you wouldn't uh, have that, you know, maybe fatigue and like the stress, or extra stress that's involved. But for us, we have to travel, right? Basically, everyone has to travel to do yeah. decent orienteering. Mm-hmm. And I think that adds to it. Thinking about that mental stress of... You know the juniors kind of resetting their aims. How do, how do those athletes now, who've got a year left, or those athletes who have got no years left now, reset? Hmm. How how are they going to move into the winter? Um, is there a plan there, or is it just kind of decompress at the moment and deal with the the fact that everything's off? I mean, it's it's basically only just been cancelled. To be honest, there's still well, I mean, Euro meetings basically essentially off for us as well. So it looks yeah. like. I look like junior or senior, there's nothing across the board. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, everyone has to deal with their own way. It's not necessarily the great thing to tell to the juniors, but like the junior, like your last jaywalk is not the end of something. It's, it's the beginning. Mm. When you're a junior, obviously jaywalk means everything. Your junior year, like you have this like 
building up you want to try and go to four or three or two or one jaywalk and you're building up but but really like no one remembers Thierry for how he did it jaywalk yeah. right and so <laughs> like for some people for some people Absolutely. that might be the hot it might be the highlight of their life and great and that and that fantastic for them right um but but in principle i don't see jaywalk as as the end goal for anything mm. some, something i've said to there's been lots of discussions about just the structure of I'm sure we'll come onto this later, like the, the structure of the national program as it is at the moment. And I think the measure of a good junior program is not how it does at Jaywalk. It's, it's how we do at Walk a few years later. Mm. That's when you've got a junior, junior program. Yeah, it's great that we can go and, and come away with medals. Like that's fantastic and exceptional and, and it's amazing to be a part of. But like Jaywalk is not the end goal for a national team. Walk is the end goal for a national team. Um, and it's like, yeah, I'd, I'd love for all the athletes I coach to go and win medals at Jaywalk. But what I'd love more is for them to go and win medals at Walk. Mm. But do you think it, it's because some of the athletes are maybe a bit intimidated by that step up to the senior mm. year and they, they almost want to do well the junior year because they think maybe the senior is a bit unattainable? Yeah, I mean, it's a big jump, isn't it? it, it like that first year is a big, big step. And for maybe the top guys, you know, the top few in that age group. So when you've got, you know, normally we go to jail, you've got some like exceptional people who are like, um, they basically walk into Yeah, people like that. And even, you know, like say this year, let's look at Ali, Thomas and and Grace, right? They can actually hold their own as a senior. So Ali did win the first forest round of the UK Elite League, right? He did just destroy the entire senior squad who turned up. Mm. Um, For them maybe not so big, but actually, you know, you, we take six people in, in male and female to jaywalk. And then there's people who aren't even going to jaywalk who, you know, are potentially going to run walk. Right. So there's, there's a lot more juniors who we'd like to see moving on as seniors. And it is a jump. I think what you have to accept is you go from big fish to small fish. Um, yeah. And you need, you need to change your like viewpoint on how you're going to do. Um, you need to accept this. Like in most cases, you're, you're not going to be finishing high up like genuinely like um i mean strength and depth like men's men's sport is a little bit stronger and deeper than women's sport i don't think that's a controversial thing to say mm-hmm. um and and so like as a junior moving up but you know a top 10 top 12 in, in the women's elite is really hard to get and on the men's you're talking like 15 to 20th overall at jk is legit actually hard to get mm. as as a junior so suddenly you're going from a bad run is third to a, a good run is 21st if, if everyone if everyone turns up so you, you just have to change that mindset and i guess as a coach that's your job to help them appreciate that but in a constructive way you, you mm. don't just go right next year you're going to get pumped enjoy it, <laughs> it, it, it's like but to some extent you need that everyone you, you do need that like slap of reality yeah um, yeah but do you think but, that is kind of part of the way we see that some juniors are not making the the transition to senior they're dropping out or they're finding other sports you think that's part of it yeah i mean it's an interesting thing like so at work there's a whole there's about 20 professional coaches across all sports and and this is something that all sports experience right Mm. and one of the things that constantly comes up is like an athlete's like ability to deal it's like their mental toughness or their ability to deal with adversity and stuff like that and um some athletes will move up and not do so well for the first few years. And you, you have to appreciate it's years. Right? It's, it takes years to start making an impact. Unless you're exceptional, generally you're looking at, I'm going to spend maybe two or three years, maybe run a World Unis, then start getting some World Cups. And mm. then 
you know, I don't know what the average debut age for GB at, at WOC is, but it's probably closer to 25. Well, um, yeah, we were looking at, um, Will and I were chatting recently about those making WOC and yeah, everyone's over 25, really. Yeah. And so they have to, you know, they have to understand it, it, it's going to take that time. Now, now, some people will be up for that challenge. That I know I'm going to get there. I know I'm good enough. I believe, and they'll do what it takes. They'll they'll do the graph. They'll put those years in, and then yeah, they'll make their debut. I think I was how old was I? Twenty eight when I made my walk debut. I think those are the people who've actually been through a bit of adversity, and I think there's other people who maybe actually have had a bit of an easier ride through their junior career, for want of a better word. They haven't had to fight for stuff. They're not used to not winning they're not used to not being selected for stuff and they might not actually and through no fault of their own i'd like to add but they might not have developed the the sort of mental skills that mental toughness to deal with that and so it's kind of just uh through the situation that these people drop out because they don't know what to do they've never had that before so actually i think you know being good when you're young is not necessarily a good thing for being good when you're older (laughs) and do you think they see that it's either you know, you're getting selected for races or you do nothing. You know, I'm one of the things I am really all about is trying to help others understand there's lots of other things you can do in orienteering other than competing at the highest level. Well, yeah, it depends. Like, I mean, it depends what you mean in that sense. It depends if, like, they're moving up and it's like they're not going to be at walk straight away. So maybe go and run some world ranking events, go to POM, do stuff mm-hmm. like that, or go to O Ring. And if you, you know, if you want to, if you want to get your ass handed to you, there's plenty of other ways to do it and plenty cheaper ways than walk. Um, in terms of the wider, wider aspect <laughs> Less of the sport. Less painful as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In terms of like the wider aspect of the sport, then yeah, obviously you want to keep people in the sport. I mean, that is, that is not my job, right? I'm, I'm paid quite specifically yeah. to help people perform at the international stage. And every now and then you do get, you do hear this thing. It's like, oh, you know, that the squad gets criticized because we didn't take people to an international competition. And, our events is like we can clearly demonstrate through the results they're not suitable for that level of competition. I think there's obsession with taking full teams with the understanding is like they were the sixth best or fourth best they deserve to go and it, it, with this next up strategy. It's like, but but maybe if you're taking somebody who's not ready for that competition, they're going to go, they're going to do dreadfully, and it's it's not a best beneficial thing. Um, and also like if you look at a sport like athletics, we can't just take three people in every event to the Olympics. There's this minimum standard mm-hmm. and, and we have operated down that way and we've become, we've been criticised quite heavily for operating in that way. But like, I, I believe in that. I, I back that. It's like you should take people who are ready and it's going to be beneficial for them. And people are like, oh, they might drop out the sport because they couldn't go to EJOC or something. It's like a national team's job is not to keep people in the sport. That is a club's job. Yeah, I, I'd love for everyone to stay in the sport and be involved. There's plenty of people you, you see sort of, they do just drift away, right? They go from mm-hmm. jaywalk to disappeared. Um, there, there, there's loads of examples. I'm not going to name names because it's not fair to sort of highlight people like that. But there's, I can think of people who did four jaywalks and disappeared. Um, mm. And then you have to ask, like, was there anything we could have done that? Is that an eternal thing? Is that is that their desire and motivation? That, that That's not anything that we've necessarily done wrong. Maybe that was mm-hmm. always going to happen. So what do you think clubs clubs need to do if you're you know if you're saying that's not the responsibility of the national team then what do you think the clubs need to be doing have a club culture would help mm-hmm. i mean you the var like there's some exceptional clubs in this country who do fantastic stuff uh lots of training they've got an actual club thing but like having lived in sweden spent 
half a year in Finland as well, it's you see the difference. I think a lot of clubs operate, they exist in the UK to put on events and you need a membership to run other people's events. I feel they're basically like a membership card and a mechanism for delivering orienteering competitions. Uh, how many clubs, you know, do regular structured training rather than they just sort of do random incoherent club nights and stuff like that. And, and you start to look down at what goes on and do they do socials together? You know, how, how, how much club culture do we really have in this country? And I think there's some clubs which are exceptional, fantastic, but I think actually a lot of clubs, it's just about putting on the events, going to events. Um, and, and there needs to be a social aspect to the sport. Like sport needs to be fun. I mean, it doesn't matter what level, at the elite level. In fact, I was like, I've been coaching some various athletes this year from athletics, right? Mm. And I was like, we were talking, it's like, what's, I was like, these are my four goals for, for you. And it's like, be happy be healthy, enjoy training and excited by racing. Mm. Um, and, and that doesn't matter if you're good, you know, going to walk or you're, or, or you're the worst person and, and you know, you, you've just done couch to 5K and you're, you're trying to jog your way around an orange. It needs to be enjoyable. Mm-hmm. Going to an event on your own, sitting in the car, jogging to the start, coming around, not knowing anyone in your club, having no one to talk to, driving back. Is that enjoyable? Mm-hmm. I think a lot of people are so sort of obsessed with, you know, Orienteering attracts a certain type of mindset. They like the uh, life of the long distance runner and that sort of analytical, mathematical mind who likes the, the challenge and the puzzle of it. So they get a lot of satisfaction from that. But having been a member of different clubs, and I'm not talking about orienteering clubs, just at university, joining the mountaineering club and the hare and hounds, and like the social aspect of sport is crucial for it to survive. What's keeping people there because they enjoy it? It's not just the sport. Yeah, and I think I think we struggle, and I, I think it's not our fault, right? I'm not I'm not blaming the clubs. I'm just saying it, right? And people are going to get offended by what I've said, but I'm not particularly bothered by that. Um, and it's just a, it's like in Scandinavia, like a a city the size of Edinburgh would have like thirty clubs, all with a club hut, all on a massive map. Whereas you know we don't have maps nearby. None of us can afford a club hut. We don't mm-hmm. have companies like Volkswagen willing to chuck fifty thousand pounds at us per year. So it's hard, it's hard for that to exist. And look at the catchment areas of some clubs. You know, they're counties. Yeah, bigger, yeah. yeah. Like Link- Lincoln. Yeah, bigger Lincoln is, a, and that's a big county as well, right? Yeah. And, and, and you, come, you come to Scotland and it's like, you leave Perth, okay, so that's Tay. Your next club is Bassock. Admittedly, no one lives there, but, <laughs> but the, the catchment areas are huge. Um, that's a problem. How can, how can you have a social life? How can you have this club culture when you're spread across tens close to like a hundred miles it, it's hard for that to exist and you know people what you can do you're going to commute from all over your your county to like so southampton again like if you look at in in south central so that's Catherine, that's where we're from right so yeah. like hampshire has got southampton and Bado, basingstoke and those are the only SN. Well, I, I'd consider them a southeast club, but yeah, they they like to sit on the border, don't they? Yeah, yes, mm. I think at the moment we have more members in South Central, but it's yes, we're on the border. Yeah, is Sarah so not down there. It is. It's a neighbouring, but that's southwest. So that's um, oh, Salisbury. okay, is that southwest. So, but but you still like it, even a, Hampshire has got a large population. Port yeah. Portsmouth does not have an orienteering club, and you've got Portsmouth and Gosport. That's hundreds of thousands of people. There is no orienteering club there. So, are you expecting someone who lives in Portsmouth? If they want to go orienteering, they have to drive to Southampton to do it. If they want to go to the pub quiz with their orienteering club, they have to drive to Southampton to do it. Same for Winchester. That's just unfeasible. Compare it to how many athletics clubs there are, where you live. Compare that to how many orienteering clubs. And it's just, it's, 
it's a losing battle to be quite honest i don't know i don't know what the solution is but i think that is that is a problem but i have no uh I don't know how to get around that, but I think it is a problem. I totally agree with you. I feel like we've gone off on a tangent. Will, do you want to just get <laughs> yeah. us back in the right place? Well, Sorry. well, let's. Um, I was going to say let's. It's a very good tangent, um, and one yeah, starting a lot of questions. Um, but I was going to move it back to um, to the to the GB setup and the future of it. You mentioned Nixon, kind of how you move juniors through, kind of takes three to five years to to make walk and and so forth. Um, why don't we just war game a bit the uh, the road to walk in twenty twenty four? How do we take you know four years time, three years time? What we've got now is a crop of athletes through to through to there. How do how do we shape the focus of the and the structure of the uh, the country to get there? I think it's a big, a big question. question. No, no, it's a very good question because obviously we do have a home championships coming up. We had one very recently, and and, and you know we had some success there, and, and it's a fantastic thing. And uh, being able to host walk is like a privilege, right? And and for a lot of good people, being able to host walk in their home city, right? There's been a lot of GB internationals who come through Edinburgh. There's a lot of people who are going to be highly motivated mm. and highly prepared for that. I think it's a potential problem. I think, like, you know, okay. SWOT analysis, so strengths, weeks, opportunities, and threat. Obviously, we should assess our strengths and weeks as a nation. Well, I'd say sprint is a strength, right? So we're going <laughs> in. That's a big tick. Opportunity, home championship. We know the terrain. Okay, who needs opportunity? Here's the threat. The threat is we focus on doing as well as we can for 2024 and we don't deal with the fact that we have basically no senior setup at the moment. Like, yes, it's nice to do well in 2024, but actually we need to have a performance structure that starts at the, sort of the uh, 16 age, maybe something like that. So which is starting to work with the regional squads, going up into a junior program, then going into an under 23 or under 25s program, then going into a senior performance program. Unfortunately, we don't have that, and I think it, I think there's going to be a lot of motivation, potentially some resources, hopefully money, but volunteer resources trying to do well for 2024. We're going to get a lot more volunteers. Oh, I'll help you put on a camp. I'll drive you. I'll, I'll cook on a camp and all this stuff. Right? That's not dealing with the problem. Problem is, due to various reasons, we don't have a senior squad. You know, it, it's just a list on a piece of paper. There, there's no there's no training going on. There's there's no performance director trying to uh direct you know, direct that's shouldn't really, performance director trying to sort of <laughs> show their vision of what they want British orienteering to be, where we're going to be. There's there's no that drive doesn't exist. Um and that that's a bigger problem. And do you know what? The amount of talent we have in the sprint orienteering, we're, we're gonna do well at 2024, whatever. Yeah, like we've <laughs> we can sprint. Um <laughs> yeah. We 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 don't need to change what we're doing to do well there because we do do well at sprint. Like I wouldn't, I wouldn't have, it's like, let's address the actual real problem. It's like, and what's the point of us going to 2024 and, and doing exceptionally well? And then, but then we're terrible in 25, 26, 27, 28, 29, yeah. 30. Can you explain a little bit more about how there's no squad and what that means? And also maybe compare it to what other nations have? Because I think a lot of, maybe some of the listeners, a lot of club orienteers just kind of like, don't know much about the squad or they see that list yeah. of names and they think that they're getting lots of support and structure <laughs> and everything so do you want to spell it out yeah i mean I, i'm sure i'll probably make some mistakes um because uh, no, i'm involved in the in the juniors so i don't know the senior yeah, system yeah. perfectly we'll talk about it the all, juniors as well you know well it, it comes down to one thing that's money right it, it to, to run a, a program takes money there are going to be some people listening go oh you can all do a volunteer support yeah okay you can fine but there's a reason British cycling, British athletics, British swimming are, are doing well, and it, it's called £25 million. When I first started orienteering, 
not when I first started, but when I first became aware of elite orienteering, we had UK sport lottery funding and we were exceedingly rich, exceedingly rich compared to other <laughs> nations. Um, and when UK sport decided that they were going to focus on purely Olympics, Olympic sports, then obviously we took a massive financial hit. I think our, the performance directors we've had and the talent squad managers we've had over the years. So uh, Sarah Haig, Jackie Newton and Paul Murgatroyd have been exceedingly good at actually managing to divert some of our resources that we have into the talent program and using it as part of a, you know, essentially there's money for development and, and, and being able to you know, get some resources for the juniors. So our juniors are still relatively well resourced. Um, the talent squad is able to operate a yearly training camp. Uh, there is a significant athlete contribution towards that, but but the weekends are still massively uh, subsidised. And and we we focus on we're going to do things properly. We're gonna we're gonna train like a, a performance culture. We're gonna train hard. We're not gonna go self catered into youth hostels because it's like in the evening we don't want our athletes to be spending a couple of hours cooking, doing the washing and stuff. We need to be looking at the maps, looking at GPS, actually teaching them. I think that's the one thing actually we do different compared to maybe the regions and clubs is like, it's not just go orienteering, go home. It's go orienteering, analyze, educate. We have a proper education program through year, trying to teach them some some important skills, um, a lot about the orienteering, but also stuff outside the orienteering, just performance lifestyle stuff. So I think the talent squad's doing all right, although our funding's going to end pretty soon. Because, um, you know, Sport England are like, and you can't blame them. Like, I'm not going to pretend the orienteering is an important sport. It is to me, but it's not to them. So, like, yeah, the fact we've got in the money, modern world now. Yeah. The fact we've got money is fantastic. Um, and, and then the seniors, obviously, they're unable to access that. You, you can't really argue WOC is a development opportunity. Um, so, so they've had, you know, very limited resources. And the British orienteering put, have put some of their money towards that. And it helps lessen the financial burden of, of WOC. And we've had previously staff members. Um, so like, again, I'm not, I'm not going to try and name everyone, but like most recently you had, um, Eddie Nicholas and, and Liz Campbell, you know, trying under very difficult circumstances to have a program, have a vision, work towards something due to various reasons. We're not able to have, have them working with the senior team now. So I think having a coach in place is, is more valuable than the money it costs to have the person in place. So say we had 15 grand. Yeah. You can make a few people's lives nice. You know, you can maybe pay for what and pay for some training camps. You know, if you had 15 grand, it's like, okay, well, let's just spend that on the sprint team and some relays because that's our closest medal opportunity. Yeah, sure. And I think that that's where we could spend money. But actually having someone in charge to drive that, I think is also a very good uh, use of, of money. And that and that's what we don't have. We, ha- we have no one in charge. There's some volunteers. I know John Cross is doing a lot of work at the moment to try and mm-hmm. um, support people, but, it, you know, it's purely an ad- administrative position that he's doing. So... You're a meeting, for on, example, on the back is, of his work as well. Yeah, and so you're a meeting, for example, is a race that's coming up. So like Hector Haynes has been, um, you know, and this is a, this is a guy who should be competing at Walk, right? So you got Hector Haynes is like looking after the training camp, and, and John Cross is doing this sort of logistical stuff, you know, entering us uh, into into the competition and stuff like that. But there's there's no one to decide like how are we using this as our strategy to prepare for Czech Republic? Who are we going to take? What's our focus? Who's who's talking to athletes on a week to week basis? who's who's doing all this stuff so it's there's a few things you need to like have a program and it's um opportunities to compete is is one of them so we can still do that but like a a positive training environment as someone who's going to ring you up and see how you are talk to you i don't think many athletes really have personal coaches and those who do i don't think they necessarily use them in the way that is optimal some do some have really good close open relationships with coaches and they're talking on a daily 
if not weekly basis, but others are maybe self-coached or they have a coach, but it's just a name on a piece of paper. And so having, having a squad manager or coach to look after these people and, and drive the program, I think, I mean, I'm going to be a little bit critical of the seniors now. I think they've actually lacked vision for a few years. If you look at the way the selections have gone, it's, it's not, I think there's some selections that they seem to just, I know, no vision. I don't, I don't understand some of the selections that have gone on. It just seems to be just be taking anyone who wants to go to a competition. Like, is, is that the best thing to do? Or should we be supporting uh, the people who, you know, take a select group and, and hothouse a few, like, top people? And it's like, I'm not having a go at any athlete who's going and not having a go at, at the selections in general. But, you know, you can look at some selections and go like, is that person international level? And quite frankly, no. Um, so I don't necessarily see the benefit and it's just been like, just select everyone, send the biggest team we can select everyone, send the biggest team we can for race after race after race. Um, I'd say in my opinion, actually, I think some of the seniors have had a bigger say in their selections than the selection panel, make people pulling rank and, and demanding what races they run and stuff like that. There's certainly been times when from an outside perspective and I have no inside knowledge, so it's probably completely wrong, but you know, essentially force people. It's like you're either running what is best for, for our medal opportunities or you're not running. Mm. I want to run this. It's like, I don't care if you want to run that. We don't think you have a medal opportunity in that race, but in this race you do, and therefore you should be running that. And I, I think that even, you know, that's the thing that a performance director should be doing, telling people it, it's, it's, it, yeah, interesting. That's probably quite controversial. So there you go. <laughs> but you can hear the frustration in your voice of just wanting it to be successful. And I do, I do see what you're saying. Um, as as someone who's probably been quite lucky in terms of a couple of selections they've had and probably some people looking at going oh don't know about that one um but yeah that that kind of structure of thinking about check and next year and where we were in 2008 getting a relay you'd think oh maybe we want yeah want to go and repeat that and already be thinking about um relay teams you know, what leg do we want people to run how are we going to test people on different legs mm. of the relay at your meeting and maybe as athletes in the senior squad we become too complacent and expect people to do it for us and we're not taking enough enough initiative so people like Hector who are now you know organising the camp and working with John working with Mark Saunders who's going to be you know, providing support on it and the rest of us are we doing enough um, to facilitate that and just expecting it to be done for us. I think there's a, there's a question to be asked of the athletes there as well, actually. Yeah, um, that's a good point. I've, I mean, that's something I've actually experienced, you know, because I, so I work with junior squads in the talent, talent squad, right? So I work with them for a couple of years before they come to Edinburgh. The thing is to have a good program, you essentially have to like spoil your athletes. And so you end up doing a lot of things and then it's like, well, back in my day, I had to do this myself, right? So then you get this like personal resentment, but it's like, <laughs> but I'm doing, I'm doing the best I can for them. But then it's like, are you like removing the opportunity for them to learn how to do stuff. So like if your entire life, all your training camps have been organized for you, you, you know, you don't know how to, you don't even know how to start to do it. So it's an interesting point, Will. And it's like, where's the balance between putting people in the best position possible by having a huge support structure around them versus giving them an opportunity to learn how to do some stuff. Now, if you can permanently have an amazing support structure around a team, you do it. So if you look at British cycling, so Victoria Pendleton thinks a really good example. This is a person who I don't think would have been able to perform at the Olympics if she didn't have basically have a full-term, full-time psychiatrist on hand. She seems mm. to collapse under pressure the whole time. She goes on strictly and you actually see, really, that's not a competitor. She, mm. she is a product of British cycling. 
without them, I don't think she would have achieved. Like, and, 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 and actually it's interesting. Like, yeah, strictly come dancing. It is the same pressure as a competition. Right. And, and, and she, mm. she fell to, fell to pieces. Yeah. Um, and it almost the point, like, I don't even know she likes cycling. I think she just likes competing, but enough that we won't dwell on that. But like, but British cycling, we're able to give it all support. So you've got someone who physiologically is world-class, right? You cannot deny the, mm. the, the physical talent of someone like Victoria Pendleton. Adding in all, all the support, she doesn't have to think about what she cooks because she'll be sent uh, a nutrition plan. You know, loads of pros even get their food cooked for them and, and so that she's not having to focus on all this, this external stuff. So if you can do that for their entire career, then you're going to get what you get, which is Victoria Pendleton wins loads of gold medals, <laughs> right? Because she's got the talent and, and then, and then British Cycling look after the rest. But when, if you can't guarantee that, it's like if you spoil them as a junior, which is what we're doing, they then go to seniors. Um, they go from a talent squad, which is doing stuff all the time. Um, reg- junior regional squads, okay, they do a fantastic job. We've got loads of great junior regional squads doing stuff for them the whole time. Maybe they go to university doing stuff for them the whole time. And then they graduate from university and it's welcome to the real world. Nothing's mm. happening for you. And they don't, they don't necessarily have the skills. And it's not their fault. None of this is anyone's fault. It's just, it's just the way it ends up. They don't know how to yeah how to deal with that yeah it's a fine line it's a really interesting line it's really it's a tricky balance and i imagine that we've had an increase in foreign listeners recently and people listening to us from from other nations you know we've had um simona abasold on uh, from the swiss team and uh yannick michels from the belgian setup which obviously has nothing at all and then you know people listening from from finland uh, sweden etc yeah you know, just go well didn't realize that didn't didn't realize there's no money or people like Yannick could go what are you complaining about at least you've got some people so it's uh <laughs> it's it's balanced whatever you do but yeah there's a yeah it's it's how we proactively move forward I always have to tell Jonas Mertz who I commentate with hmm. I try and feel because he's you know he's Swiss and he lives in Sweden and he has the whole Swedish setup and also the background of the whole Swiss setup and I'm like no, the the athletes basically get nothing. They pay yeah. their way to the world championships and to all the selection races. And no, we don't have this many team, you know, team members of staff and you know coaches at a club who are paid coaches. Um, that just doesn't exist. I've got to be like, no, this is how the other side of orienteering is, unlike Scandinavia and and Switzerland. Because mm. I mean, big, you, big you're boys, quite unique. Oh, Thank you. No, I was going to say, what I was going to say was being, <laughs> being born Swiss is basically life doping, right? <laughs> like, it's unfair. Like, the, I mean, it's funny because I've been, I've spoken with the Swiss coaches at Jaywalk and they were complaining. It's like, oh, our budget's only 400 million Swiss francs this year. I don't know, don't know what we're going to do. We can't hire Mercedes anymore. And like, but like, it's funny to hear them complain about their lack of budget. And it's like, yeah, our budget's zero, pal. Yeah. Um, and I think we punch. You know what? As a nation, I think we punch. I think we punch for the amount of support we're given financially from sporting bodies. I think we punch compared to the terrain we have, compared to our population, compared to our orienteering population. Actually, I think we do exceptionally well. And I think we do better than 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 people expect. And it's like if you compare the United Kingdom to Czech Republic, then I don't know. Maybe there's more of a debate. But you'd argue that like generally, life in the UK is a bit more comfy than life in the Czech Republic. But I think it would be a lot easier to be a, a world class orienteer being Czech. Um, the Polish boys, they're all pretending to be in the army. Austrian boys, mm. the similar. The Swiss guys, not only do they have a national national team that's, you know, leaking gold, they they also pretend to be in the army. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a um, lot said for, for compulsory military service when you just go and sit behind a desk all day. Well, even that. The Austrians as well. Um, yeah, there's, there's, <laughs> French. Russians. French. Yeah, Thierry's a policeman, apparently. Um, yeah. 
<laughs> it's tough, but we're competing against professionals. There's so many people you go to walk and they're basically professionals. So in SNO, we've got yeah. um, my, Michael Oleśnik. He's Polish. He's, he's, he's in the military and like, he doesn't do anything in the military, right? <laughs> like he doesn't do anything. Um, and he, he gets to, you know, he gets to train full time. He gets, he gets a budget and stuff like that. And people don't appreciate that. Like we, we think we're better off than Poland. Like we're not better off than the Polish orienteers. No way. And yet, you know, we do beat, we, we are better than Poland at orienteering. Yeah. What made you want to get into coaching in the first place? Ha, yeah. Yeah. I was expecting that one. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I didn't like this because I didn't want to get into coaching. I just got into coaching. So, um, obviously had a, well, I don't think we can use the word career. I was orienteering for a while and, um, had some, had some mild success. There was a few times I ended up doing coaching that as a, as just, uh, just a consequence of like, you know, how good I was at that time. So I went to pre jaywalk for Denmark. No, that's not right for Poland. So whenever that was 2007, I want to send, no, no, it's way after no. that. I was like oh, Australia before. or Italy. No, it was like 10 or 11. Something like that. I think it was, um, I think Poland was 11 and then pre jail because in 2010. And that's just because Jason Inman was my coach at the time and he was obviously a junior squad manager. And it's like, oh, come along. That was really good. I enjoyed that. That was good fun. And and it is enjoyable when you feel like you're helping people. I didn't necessarily, you know, that wasn't seeing my coach. And then, Will, you'll remember this one. A few years later, I just basically went out as a driver to pre Czech Republic jaywalk. Yeah. Do you remember that? That was great. Well, that, that's yeah, still yeah. one of my fav- most favorite camps of all time. What a classic camp that was. That um, was, oh, that had some stories. There's some good stories from that. So was that like 2012, 2013, something like that? Uh, that was tw- 2013, yeah, April. Yeah, and so Charlotte Watson, um, so then, again, this is when we didn't, actually, I don't think there's much support going on. I'm not sure, I don't think you'd done a pre walk the, the year before, so we, we went out just No, that was all Jake. self-organised, yeah. Yeah, yeah, so Charlotte Charlotte was in charge, Charlotte Watson, and we, <laughs> we turn up to uh, a pump, like, Sig- do you remember that? Sigma Pumpy? We turn up to like an... Uh, oh. uh, a pump shop, <laughs> some sort of plumbers. And then Charlotte sort of disappears into this compound for like an hour. And we're like, Charlotte's dead. It's so like, well, long. Charlotte's definitely dead. And then she eventually appears with this babushka who comes around the corner. And she's like, I've, I've, I've found this. And we're in like this sort of weird truckers hostel. That was thing. the official sea accommodation for the yeah. competition. I no, can't no, believe no, team no, no, there. Ex- no expense spared. But do you know yeah. what? The camp, the camp was, I mean, that was quite funny, but the camp was quality. Um, oh, it's brilliant! Amazing yeah. terrain, good bunch of people, and again, I like—I wasn't there as a coach, right? I was just um, Charlotte. I was at uni with Charlotte, and she was like, "Can you drive us?" I was like, "Yeah, I'm old enough." Obviously, I was like, "Yeah, international athlete at the time." I ran walk that year, so can impart some wisdom. I remember Will on the last day actually, like, think um, neither of us ran, and we went for a little walk, and just like having a chat with you, and it's actually it's, like quite enjoyable. And it's like mm. I didn't feel like I, I wasn't there as a coach, but just being able to try and share with the people, and it's like. All the mistakes they're about to make at Jaywalk, I've made, um, and it was like trying, like trying to like share that wisdom um, to help people is quite fulfilling. I also remember then when we were on that walk, it was in sandstone terrain, right? Because we had to move because there was snow, so we went we went to basically where Walk is next year, and there was this um, sandstone ravine, and Johnny Crickmore was running along the bottom, and you could look, and it's about. 50 centimetres wide the whole way down and Johnny's shimming along to his control and he just shouts, I've lost satellites! Because <laughs> it was like that, uh, I don't know why that sticks in my mind, but that was really quite funny. I forgot um, that bit. Do you remember that? 
<laughs> yeah. yeah, what a camp. There were so many. We managed to set a kettle on fire. Also, it was boiling and and on fire at the same time. Yeah, <laughs> oh, that yeah. that accommodation is stuck in my mind. It can never get worse than that accommodation. No, exactly. You, you, yeah, I mean that's that's a vital lesson there. If you can if you can cope with Sigma Pompey, then you can cope with anything. Yeah, and so so um, those were two. Oh. Sorry, yeah, no, those those were two things. Where I, I'd not. I just got asked to go, and it's quite enjoyable. And I'd not really thought about about coaching and particularly I was still competing and then well I was still competing is actually I, I got the job at the end of that year well end of 2013 was when um so we had Tony at Edinburgh for a while and then Tony went back to Finland and then I was graduating and the job at Edinburgh came up I applied for it because I thought this would be a great way to continue my competing career because you know a part, part-time coach very flat I mean at that point I started on two days a week very part-time coach I'm going to be able to train when I want when I'm working, half of my work is going to be training as well. So, so I'm not going to pretend I got into it because I wanted, <laughs> wanted to be a coach. I got into it because I thought it'd be a good job. And I did, obviously, you know, I was qualified. Like I got the position. Like I wasn't just some mug trying to get an easy cushy ride. Like, I, like I'm assuming I was doing something right as I've managed to keep that job. But it was, it was more accidental. And then that coincided within my within the first year there. Basically, I I stopped competing internationally. I'd had a long string of injuries and stuff, and I kind of mentally just. I don't think I could really use the word retire because I wasn't really in a position to to retire from, but definitely stopped trying after mm-hmm. that. And then the coaching became more of a more of a focus for me after that. And I know people say I'm all right at it, so I'll keep doing it. It's a, it's a better life than working in an office, I imagine. Nice. Well, there's no offices at the moment, so well, true. <laughs> but you know what I mean. <laughs> yeah. What have you learned then since then about coaching and how what makes a good coach yeah I was also anticipating coaching like that or and and do you know what I think asking a coach is the wrong person to ask I think if you want to accept that I'm a good coach then you should ask people who say that mm-hmm. not me because I can't like I try my best across all the different things I try my best at you know all the like as well as I can I'm not saying my best is particularly good but I try my best at all the different things and maybe some people appreciate the physical training and some people might appreciate the coach like the the one-to-one coaching and some people might appreciate when I shadow them and some people might appreciate just having someone to talk to or some people might find the fact that you know I try and make things fun and and, and use my sense of humor so there's I I can't say what works it's I think it's very much up to the athlete and I imagine if you did actually ask them they'd come up with different answers I've always tried to be open and honest with them um in terms of just like information and and, and stuff like that like uh, they even when maybe federations or universities don't necessarily want information to be passed along it's like my, my job is actually to get the best out of the athlete um so i think i think honesty is like really important um yeah. and i think for, like i said it earlier it's a bit cheesy like keep it fun but like i try <laughs> and like if like if i'm giving like you know a coaching talk and stuff like that if at no point anyone's laughed it's like that's not a good talk if, if no one like if you can't make people laugh then i think that's quite quite important because we do have a fair few juniors listening if they're looking for a personal coach maybe like mm. what would you you know recommend people look out for if they're looking for a personal coach yeah I mean when I especially for juniors when I was younger I had a few personal coaches and I think on retrospect it wasn't really what people need I think not, neither me as an athlete nor them as a coach really knew what we were doing mm-hmm. at, at, at the time and I think I think there's a lot of that I think people get asked by a junior so maybe if you're uh, a reasonably well-known senior or veteran um, in your region you know local hero local legend people are like, oh can you coach coach my child or can you coach this this athlete we have in a club or a region and you go yeah but they, people don't the athlete doesn't know what coaching is and the coach doesn't know what 
coaching is and I don't maybe I don't know what coaching is but like it's 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 I don't know what's the most important thing I like it's a relationship it's it's both people have to work at it you have to be able to say anything you want and I think I mean this is a point I've made to a few people before a coach is different to a parent um a parent's ultimate job is to love and protect their child coaches to get the best out of them and I think I think those are different roles mm. um I I need to tell an athlete a different like a parent might tell them what they want to hear. I need to tell them what I have to tell them what they need to hear, um, which is slight, slightly, slightly different relationship in that. But it is almost quite a parental role to some extent. We need to mm. give them their freedom, freedom as well. Mm. I think it's kind of it's interesting when you're yeah talking about the personal coaches and and whether they're any good because I kind of loosely coach I'd say more like mentor a couple of juniors mm. locally but I'm Good very word. aware that there's there's lots that I don't know and yeah. you know whether I can talk a lot about technical side of things or whatever but I can't talk about really much about physical training or the mental side of things and I'm like yeah you know that's always seems to be a big there seems to be maybe people who know a lot about a small part of coaching but not necessarily the whole yeah. package I think that's a really important point and I think uh, the difference between a good coach and a great coach is a great coach will know they don't know some things. I I know I know nothing about uh, female menstruation, right? I'm not going to pretend I know what it's like to have a period. It would be wrong for me to make any assumptions about female training through their period. Like, I know that I don't have a degree in psychology. Mm. Um, I know I, I don't have a degree in physiology. I'd say my area of expertise is the technical side of things. Um, I, I'm not an expert in strength and conditioning and I'm not an expert in nutrition. I have experience in all of these things and I have limited knowledge in all of these things, but I think it's actually the most important thing to be an expert is to know your limitations. And, and it's okay to admit that like no one knows everything. Scientists spend years and years and years to be an expert at something really, really, really quite specific. <laughs> um, and, yeah. and that's, and maybe you have, you know, there's those people have multiple coaches to have a physical coach and a technical coach. That's quite normal. Loads of people that I don't, I don't take offense if someone says, oh, well, this, I'm using my athletics coach or whatever, or even if they've got more than one technical coach, I think it's an athlete. You should be getting information from as, as many places as, as possible. But I think it is important to have, maybe have one person and mentor is the word you use. I think mm. that's, that's more the role. And I think we just use the word coaching wrong. I think when I look at the coaches I've had, especially like later on, once I've learned what I need from a coach and, and maybe our relationships have developed, I've just started working again with the coach, but like, they were like, oh, I'm not sure if I can coach you. You know more than me. Um, but I was like, I don't need a coach. I know what I'm doing. Mm. Like, no, I need someone to talk to as a sounding board who will listen to me um, and and hold me accountable. And said, so, like, have you thought about this? Have you thought about that? Yeah. I think actually, and sometimes have is, a different perspective. All right, precisely. And I think, I think, I mean, obviously, I've got experience, so I kind of know what I need out of that relationship. I think you don't need to be an expert. It just being someone to talk to is good coaching. Just to hear different perspectives and just sometimes saying something out loud in in yourself you sort of start to self-rationalize it's like actually now that i talk about it maybe that's not a good idea or maybe this was the reason or maybe that was the reason and and and, and stuff like that i think another thing that's come up in a few times is i've had, had this debate um with fellow colleagues about what's more important being a good teacher i.e ability to communicate a subject versus knowing the subject right and we 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 came to different conclusions and I was, i'm going to stand by mine they were like it's really important to be able to communicate if you, if you cannot communicate it's pointless and i was like yeah, no. Someone who can communicate really well but does not know their subject matter, right, can very well or teach very well the wrong thing. That's mm. dangerous. They, they, they can really teach you something that is actually negative. 
So being a good coach, but not knowing what you're coaching is actually worse than being, you've all been to university. So, you know, sometimes you have perhaps a foreign lecturer who might be some maths genius, but they basically can't speak English. Yes. Yeah. Right. And it's like, okay, they're clearly like world famous in their subject, but they don't know how to teach. Every university has them. Yeah. And it's like, okay, but the worst case scenario for men is you've learned nothing. That, that's the worst they can do is teach you nothing. Mm. Whereas a good educator with bad knowledge can teach you the wrong things. And that's a negative. So somewhere in the middle ground, hopefully it's a triangle, actually. Those are the, those are the bottom two corners. In the top, there's someone who could communicate well and, and, and knows <laughs> what they're talking about. Well. Yeah. yeah, but it's like there'll be people that's like, oh, they've won those walk medals. They must be a good coach. And it's like, well, oh, go, and, yeah. go, and look at, go and look at sports coaches. Is that, is that the case? Like, yeah. look, at the, look at the managers in the, in the Premier League. How many of them were good? Some of them were good, but some of them were terrible. You don't necessarily need to have been a good athlete, although orienteering is highly technical. If you don't know how to orienteer, you can't coach. I can't teach you how to learn the guitar because I don't know how to play the guitar. Yeah. So there, there is some degree of that, but I don't need to have been in the Beatles to teach you to learn the guitar. To teach someone what it's like to have run at walk, maybe you need to have run at walk because you don't know that. So there's different levels of coaching. Mm. And then the better an athlete gets, the more they, they need that. And generally, I think most coaching relationships, the athlete ends up better than the coach anyway. Yeah, I think definitely with the the juniors I'm coaching at the moment, they seem to be on a trajectory going much better than me. So, but it's good. To, I think it's like the general point of having different people around you to kind of draw on the different experiences and not just kind of, you know, yeah, stick with yeah. stick with one person just because they've run X Y Z. Yeah, it's, it's, yeah, it's and I think it's also it's 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 okay to challenge your coach. Mm. I, I'm perfectly willing to be wrong. Now, people will say, Nixon, you never accept being wrong. You're like, yeah, of course. <laughs> That's that, obviously. But I oh, think yeah, I know it. Yeah, go ahead. I was going to say, it's pretty accurate. Yeah. Yeah. No, I know. But that's, a, that's just a, my personality, right? That's a personality flaw. I'm willing. But I know that. Like, I won't, I won't back down. Once I've set a point of view, I stick to it. But actually, when it comes to coaching, like, I, I will. Like, I don't force people. I won't go, this is your training plan and that's what you're doing. I've never forced anyone to do I've never, I've, in fact, I don't think I've ever told anyone to train, ever. It's always been a conversation. And, and quite now it's like, tell me what you're doing. And then we have a conversation about that. I mm. nev- I have, I've never told anyone what to do. I've never like made them do anything. It's always come from them and then a conversation with myself. Um, but yeah, being, it's okay to challenge the coach because then you both start and then you have a healthy discussion about something and you can both learn. I mean, that seemed like a really, really nice way to, uh, nice thing to end on. And my, my questions were going to kind of take away from it, I think. Going on to um, the next one I had lined up was Forest or Sprint for, for Nixon. So uh, I, don't, I, don't, I don't know if we just call it there because that was a really powerful moment I to end on. I think we should. Let's, 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 do it in the, let's do that in the sprint. Yeah. I'd actually love, actually, I'm going to pitch this to Mark now and, and to you, Kevin. If there are international races, if we can get Mark on to analyse some of the performances and... And we can do a kind of a deep dive, pull them apart. Because I think that'd be quite interesting. <laughs> what, you mean really like throw some people under the bus? Yeah, let's throw some people under the bus. Did, Let, did, you, did you watch, like you probably weren't, because when I, when I did the uh, TV or the English TV for Tia Mila, it was in the middle of the night. But on long night, I absolutely threw everyone under the bus when they made a massive mistake. <laughs> no, I've always meant to watch it. I've heard such good things. Uh, I haven't. Yeah. No, I... It's like, and the thing is, it's like, Will, if you make a mistake, mate, you're going under the bus. <laughs> you're going under. Going under. Oh, no. Oh, it's the pressure. Oh, dear. <laughs> so very 
let's say thought-provoking interview mm-hmm. with uh, Mark there. Yeah, personally, really good to hear from someone who's so inside coaching a big group of juniors in the UK and hear his opinions and where he feels the sport needs to go. And um, obviously there'll be some people who disagree with his opinion. As Mark said, you know, he just puts them out there and um, he's not afraid to be challenged. So if you do have any comments or, or want to get on for a bit of a rebuttal on any points, let us know. You can come on the next podcast. Yeah, we um, genuinely would love to open up the debate on this. Absolutely. Because I yeah, think yeah. it's really interesting. Yeah, no, it's a fascinating debate and where we move the sport to in the in the future as well. So um, any opinions welcome. We can even just read them out on the podcast. But no, thanks, Mark, for jumping on and, and sharing his thoughts and visions as well. And moving off the back of that, um, we'll move on to a, a quick message about our, our sponsors, MV and uh, Straight Compasses. But Catherine, you have been out and about from the south of England. I have. And uh, <laughs> venturing onto the hills. I have. I've been on holiday. Yay! A rarity. Um, I went up to Yorkshire and um, when the weather wasn't too bad, I took myself and the Terra TTs on the Yorkshire Three Peaks Challenge, which was about 40 kilometres. And rather than wearing walking boots, because I'd wanted to run down the hills, not up them because I'm not that fit, but down them, uh, then I thought, right, I'll put some trail shoes on. So I got the Terra TTs and my feet are still here. And that is pretty high <laughs> praise for 40k on like pretty high impact terrain, lots of um, rocks and stuff everywhere and haven't got any blisters, pretty comfortable wow. and able to take, you know, the that little bit more kind of cushioning compared to their more orienteering, their forest range. Um, no complaints, took me, took me around 40k. That's fantastic to hear. And if you would um like any of the terra tts yourself you can get in contact with mv at mvstraight.uksales at gmail.com and that's nviistr8.uksales at gmail.com that's it for uh, this episode don't forget of course to listen to the sprint episode with mark nixon and we will be back in another couple of weeks with finding out what happened in the lakes and with another big interview as well we'll see you then